Welcome to Mormon Visual Culture, a podcast presented by the Zion Art Society and hosted by me, Micah Christensen. This year, we celebrate the 50th anniversary of President Spencer W. Kimball's landmark talk, The Gospel Vision of the Arts, through discussions with prominent artists, collectors, and scholars about work that has inspired them and shaped LDS culture. Today, we give you the first of a two-part interview with Dr. Josh Probert, who did his undergraduate work at BYU, where he wrote an influential study on the key figures behind the construction of the Kirtland Temple. He then went back east, first to Yale for his master's degree, where he was awarded the Dominic de Menil Scholar of Religion and the Arts, and then received his PhD from the University of Delaware in a program of study with the prestigious Wintertour Museum, the premier museum of American decorative arts. His PhD dissertation focused on the production and significance of Tiffany Studios, ecclesiastical works that is. Dr. Probert was an adjunct professor at the University of Delaware and worked on exhibitions at the Winterthur Museum. Dr. Probert returned to Utah a few years ago. He taught history and art history as a professor at Brigham Young University and is now an independent historical consultant working on a number of projects for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We are very happy to have you here today. Welcome, Josh. Thank you for having me. So today we're, we're breaking a little bit with the formula that we've had in the past. We've chosen in the past works of art made by a particular artist. And uh, when we talked about um, choosing uh, what you wanted to, uh, to choose for this, um, you picked three objects which represent visually some subjects that are of, of uh, real interest and significance to you and your work. And uh, I think I'll, I'll let you describe them. Um, do you want to go through them in, in order? We'll talk about the first image, which all of this will be sure. available on the ZionArtSociety.org website under the podcast tab so people will be able to see them. Um, can you describe the first photograph for us? Sure. Um, I'll just um, begin by explaining uh, my choice of objects. Um, the, the podcast, you ask people to you know, select a, a piece of fine art, uh, Mormon in particular, um, and um, like I told you earlier, if, if somebody could provide me a a coherent definition of fine art. I'd be more than happy to I'm, do that. I, I'm I'm with you. That and, is that um, is a that is treacherous territory, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Well, yeah. It's a um, it it is, and um, the discipline of art history itself uh, has um, really um, pulled the rug under out of under itself, especially in the uh, '70s and '80s, because. Um, if an artwork can be anything, then it's also nothing. Right. And um, it's art if I say it's art. That 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 notion. <laughs> well, that yeah. And yeah. so, the 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 language you're using harkens back to uh, Marcel Duchamp and his you know famous request to um, have a urinal with our mutt a. a eponymous name that he uh, wrote, wrote on it saying wait but this is art right right and so in a way he he questioned the whole tradition at that time not the whole tradition but but the uh, modern conception of art right and in doing so um it, that, that was a, a big challenge and instead of actually answering the the problem that he he posed um art historians merely sort of brought him in to their project and made hmm. him part of it instead of recognizing the arbitrariness of their project. And so today, um, if one buys, for example, I've taught American art history. I have a textbook. It's a great textbook. And there are many on the market. And they begin with Native American, quote unquote, art. And they take ritual objects, uh, utilitarian objects, and talk about them. Um, they will talk about um, Wampanoag um, building structures. They will show colonial New England silver. Um, they will show the architecture of 
um, old you know church or, or meeting houses and um, and all these things are part of art right 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 but then by the time you get to the 20th century art is um, something that is hangs in a gallery and that's it and so encapsulated in that textbook is the problem or the problems of of the colonial moves of in, in a in a in a liberal gesture to try to be inclusive of other cultures in this case native americans they um re they appropriate and then relabel and and make something a, a new con they make a new concept that oh this basket is all of a sudden art right um where before it had both a useful daily purpose plus it was representation of their values and their culture yeah and it may have not had any aesthetic you know uh, purposeful you know uh, aesthetic meanings but because it's there it's there right and so the same thing if you go to the metropolitan museum of art that there are the arts of oceana and africa well what does that mean um and so in the same way today um that you know that that in many ways this category is a bankrupt concept and um and it's an, an instrument of, of of power of um, commerce and of um, department chairs you know um, the interesting question that i pose to somebody is okay so if you were a university president and somebody said to you uh, um and you and you and they they didn't have any departments yet and you said oh, i want to create a department of art history okay and my university president I say okay what is what is that what is what is your subject yeah. And how oh, do you separate that out so, from cultural history? Well, right. So if the subject is no longer definable, um, as there wasn't a thing called art or the artist, like we think about it, or especially fine art before the 17th century. Um, okay, so then, there, okay, so you don't have a coherent, what about techniques and tools? Do you have, do you have lenses of analysis and critique? And there's nothing that the discipline has that historians or anthropologists don't have in terms of, as you call it, you know, cultural history. Yeah. Um, archaeologists have been interrogating objects for centuries. And, uh, you know, historians are today and call that material culture. And so, so that's the problem. You know, wh what is that? And, and, and uh, what does that mean? And so I've selected some images that I think are indicative of Mormon visual culture. Right. Which, which is a much broader term than yeah, fine art, right? Yeah, it's a coherent phrase that um, talks about ocular uh, interpretation of sensory experience. Yeah. And uh, one of your guests called uh, C.R. Savage, um, for example. Oh, you know, he was an artist. I was like, oh, wow. So now he is also part of this, you know. Right, the it, photographer C.R. Savage who went around doing a lot of not only not only was he doing it in, in a way to capture the landscape, but he was practically a surveyor. Yeah, yeah. If you would have said to him, oh, oh, you're an artist, he would have been very confused at what his photograph He would have looked at somebody like yeah. Harwood or, or, or other contemporaries and said, no, maybe, there, yeah. maybe. I'm yeah, projecting. Yeah. No, maybe no, it's, it's not true, but he would have said, I'm, I'm technically, I'm, I, I know what I'm doing. Right. Alfred Stieglitz but I don't know if not, I would consider myself. Had not got off the ground yet. Right. With gallery 291, you, hadn't, you don't have Steichen and all but, those. But it also, so it, it also doesn't deny that, it, and it is clearly a problem, but it doesn't deny that there is um, value to it aesthetically, right? That, sure. That, right? So it's, uh, sure. it's something that we can appreciate it, even though we didn't intend it on that. And that's something that that maybe we can talk about yeah. in a little bit. I don't want to get past these, but it's the idea of, it's used in art history a lot, this term intentional effects mm -hmm. versus the appro cultural appropriation of something. So maybe the artist intended something. We don't know exactly what was intended by Leonardo da Vinci in Mona Lisa, in the Mona Lisa, but we've turned it into something that's all our own. We don't necessarily mean what CR, know what C.R. Savage intended with his photographs all the time. And maybe they were just surveyor's tools. Maybe mm -hmm. they were certain things, but we've we've appropriated them to tell us something about fine art and, and, and the culture at the time, which may be mis, misguided in the way that we're doing it and doesn't necessarily tell. Well, it's anachronistic, at yeah. least. Yeah. It, you know, to impose terms upon somebody. Right. And so I'm fine, you know, so an art critic, right? You know, they're not subject to the rules of, of a historian. No. 
Whereas, you know, a historian is subject to rules of evidence and to um, historicity, uh, contemporary, you know, know, what is going on at the time. It's a a different project. Right. So under the broader umbrella of visual culture, these three images, walk us through them. I selected the first one because I think it well capture well it 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 really captures one of the central shaping paradoxes of Mormon culture. And this is an image of the Salt Lake Temple and the Tabernacle seen from the south east corner. Uh-huh. And the date of it would be roughly it, when? It, it's undated, but we we know by the landscape and the building that it's likely late 1890s. 1890s. And you see, really, in the center of it is very clearly the tabernacle. Right. To the right. The, the newer is... tabernacle. Um, and then on the left, what we today call the assembly hall, which was originally the Salt Lake Stake tabernacle. Um, and then on the right, you have the Salt Lake Temple. And so um, to understand Mormon visual culture um, and the debates that happen within it and are happening today is to, uh, I think it's necessary first to understand the, the dual aesthetic traditions upon which uh, Joseph Smith drew. And the, the first and the original one was the Protestant tradition. Um, and by that, I mean a particularly Calvinist American Protestant tradition. And the same uh, is true for Brigham Young, who speaks about, um, you know, growing up in a very austere Protestant household where the sound of the fiddle was like the sound of the, the devil, his mom would tell him, you know, ringing in his ears. And so they went to a meeting uh, in a meeting house where there was no organ, there was no music, right? Um, you know, we take organs for granted today. Church organs, they were a, a very vexed topic. You know, they didn't come to America until the 18th century, the first one in the King's Chapel in Boston. And the mayor told... So we had mayor, over 100 years yeah, of, of oh, yeah. no music even. Well, well, at least maybe singing, but no, but no... Um, go ahead, go ahead, sorry. It depended. Um, you could have, uh, especially in, the, in that area... Um, one could sing the words, but only um, through one's voice and using the notes to accent the words. Because remember, for, for that strain of Calvinist Protestants, the word of God was the only medium of salvation on the earth. There, was no, there were no sacraments. Hmm. There was not such a thing as sacred space. Um, and so if you were trying to access the divine through an image, through an interior, through space, you know, all those things um, th- that was idolatrous. That's a pretty and clear instead, organizing principle. Everything based is. on the word. That's right. And so word. that's why the, the hymns are, um, you know, the, a mighty fortress is our God. Th- uh. The music is in line with the syllables of the words, and it's to emphasize the word of God, right? And so it's very different than having, you know, a, a Renaissance um, mass that was an, much more elaborate, right? Um, or medieval uh, music, and and or you know contemporary Catholic oratorios um, that are a part of the Mass, you know, that you could also take that oratorio and put on an opera stage or something like that, right? Right. So so Brigham Young and Joseph Smith, that's this is the world they grow up in. And uh, the Kirtland Temple, for all one's uh, um, purposes, it's a, it's a Protestant meeting house. It just has two levels. And the tiered pulpits on the side were, you know, a, a, not regularly common feature but they were uh, they did appear in other buildings in Philadelphia there's one that looked almost exactly like that hmm. and so um but his idea of temple changes um the more that uh 
Joseph Smith's idea of the temple sorry, changed. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, or maybe change is the wrong word. Um, he adds to it. And um, by the time he gets to Nauvoo and is introducing new rituals and new ordinances and a new idea for the temple, that um, it's something much fancier. Um, and, and then you see that here by the time you get to the Salt Lake Temple, that there is a rejection a strident rejection of that Protestant heritage. And that happens not just in architecture, but it happens in theater, in music, um, and uh, all these sort of things where Babylon, so-called, you know, is not as suspect on, on, on the first hand, that there, um, when Brigham Young says that wherever truth is, you can call that Mormonism, he means that, in, in, in its broadest sense. And so for him, um, he writes to his sons on his mission, who are on missions in England or London, for example, and says, you need to go see everything you can. This there, is all the buildings, so you're, all the artworks. This is a, this, this begs a question that I have, but before it begs the question, uh, I'm, I'm related to Truman Angel mm -hmm. and, um, through, uh, through Brigham Young's first wife. And, um, you see journals and so forth of the uh, I should say just Brigham Young's second wife. You see, you see um, yeah. him getting all of these communiques from missionaries who are who are being sent with pretty specific ideas. Some of them are about about city planning in general. So you've got mm -hmm. Bishop Burton who's sent out to get ideas of the Paris sewer system and street layout. So he's he's figuring out the mechanics of how a large city is put together. But on top of that, they are taking these very Catholic cathedrals and buildings and 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 it seems like there's a dialogue going between Truman Angel and Brigham Young. I wonder when you talk about there being a Protestant American Calvinist tradition. Mm -hmm that both Brigham Young and Joseph Smith experienced, mm -hmm. and then this more Catholic, mm -hmm. maybe I could argue European Well, Anglican, view Anglican and, and, and is also... A, Anglican yeah. and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and a kind of world, the world and the university that they're borrowing uh -huh. from. Is that something that Joseph Smith anticipated, or is that purely Brigham Young? Or is it... Is, is it can we not parse that out? Um... <clears throat> I don't. Uh, when you say anticipated, um, it would depend on what year you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because we don't know what he anticipated early on. I mean, they well, he's not sending the missionaries out to do that because they they weren't at that stage. Well, maybe well, a little bit. What I mean bit. by that is, you know, historically, you know, as early as you know, 1830 through 31, the revelations about you know, the building of the temple, they anticipate the end of the world is coming in two years. Right. You know, and, and then right. it's, and then it's a little later. And, and so that's why, I mean, you know, it, it's tough to know because they never anticipated anything. They, they did have things like grids of what they had laid out as a for the city of Zion, for, for the city of Zion. Right. right. That was in preparation. And I don't know how much of that of was informed by, by purely American Calvinistic ideas. Oh, well, that's a bigger uh, question. The idea of the city grid um, right. But um, aesthetically, th aesthetically, I guess, if we were yeah. to narrow down and say, Joseph Smith didn't maybe have as much opportunity to express his aesthetics oh, as Brigham Young did, right? right. And right. so aesthetically, yeah. I don't know if Joseph Smith, if he represents pure American Calvinism and Brigham Young oh, starts see. evolving into something yeah, else no. from there. Yeah, That's yeah, where right. I'm getting okay. to. <clears throat> um, no, it, it, it does start with Joseph Smith. Okay. Um, and um, Brigham Young attributes his real Copernican revolution in terms of this stuff to Joseph Smith. What do you, you say? To, define Copernican. Well, I just mean a, a, a using that as a metaphor of a radical 180 degree turn in one's ideology. Okay. And so uh, Brigham Young talks about this. You know that Mormonism. You know it just lit up his life. And that everything took on this new um, brightness it, it, that the Mormon lens provided for him both a different way of seeing the world, but also 
it gave him license to engage in sensory experience that uh, Methodism, as practiced in, you know, Canandaigua area, did not. That's a really fascinating idea that in a way there's now I, I want to be careful not to add any judgment on this, but it seems like if you are if you are focusing so much just on the word and you are mortifying any sensory experience, any visual experience that's exterior, it shows up in music, it shows up in your architecture. There seems to be um, a real when when Mormonism goes out and feels comfortable borrowing from other traditions and incorporating it in their own, there's a sense of confidence that comes from, yeah, we know who we are to the point that we can borrow from other traditions without feeling like we are polluting them, right? Whereas the other tradition, and am I wrong in that idea? Versus it's versus we have to stay so pure and, and, and separate that we're not, we're not going to participate in those other things yeah. lest we become diluted right. or... Right. Or, or or overwhelmed by it, right? And is there is that confidence, or is that just experimenting? Well, um, th there are, are two things I would say that about that. The first is um, what you've um, enunciated or laid out here is one of the fundamental paradoxes of Mormon culture. Uh, a great book that addresses this uh, is Terrell Givens' "People of Paradox: A History of Mormon great Culture." Book. And in it, um, he calls this the elect versus exile paradox. That on the one hand, Latter-day Saints claim to have the truth, like capital T truth, as in the telos, the logos, that Socrates et al. have been studying. Platonic for idea. millennia, right? Yeah. That we have that, that we have the gospel, and there's a sort of um, satiated satisfaction with that that we're done there's nothing else you know and, and in a way right and well this is actually kind of part of his other paradox of the idea of certainty versus searching um but in the same way being elect one of the things about being elect is possessing something and, and, and having a particular favor with deity, right? In this case, you know, the Christian God, that, right. that you are the elect, yeah. not them. And so there's an insider-outsider boundary in that type of discourse that was very American um, and going back to the Puritans, right? And so so on the one hand, you say we're the elect and, um, and, and um, the first vision account that says, you know, all their creeds are an abomination to me, right? Um, and on the other hand, exile, that, that you're kicked out, that you're a victim, and you so badly want to be part of the club. Well, why won't they let us, why can't we be called Christians? Why, you know, and so you, you see that, like, for example, with Mitt Romney going down and, and meeting with evangelical leaders, uh, even though they have on their website, you're a cult, you're all this, you know. and yeah. Giving his equivalent of the John F. Kennedy, I'm Mormon, and this is... This is I'm going to be and, and, and this is my position vis-a-vis -vis your position. I, don't, I wouldn't say it's an equivalent, but that's a different top, okay. topic. OK, sorry. Um, I, I um, but there was um, but it's that yearning. Yes. For approval and whether it's being included in, you know, the Christian club um, or whether it's in this case, uh, speaking about visual culture, it's about having um, dis demonstrating refinement and gentility in the 19th century. It's about, you know, not wanting to be othered. Um, and, and you see that uh, in, you know, oh, we're just like you, you know. And, and now it's, you know, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir is called America's Choir. Right. This would have never happened in the 19th century. No, no. You when know, these, this was the Mohammedans. These were anathema. And, and this is, a, you know, Abraham Lincoln founded a political party on eliminating two things, slavery and Mormon polygamy. And so, but today, there, Abraham Lincoln is worshipped among Mormons. You know, Brigham Young called this guy, you know, a dirty rascal, a fiend. You know, he had nothing good to say, right? Right. And now he's over everybody's mantles and he's, you know, ordained of God. Right. So that's the tension. Right. 
right? Do you see that tension in this image that you've chosen? So yeah, um, to come back to or a similar this. tension. So here, um, in particular, um, when you're talking about Protestants, that anything sensory is bad. Um, there was a spectrum there, and uh, among early Protestants, the biggest boundary was inside the meeting house. You could have images in a Bible. Um, you could have um, samplers with crochet, well embroidered sayings and even biblical images in the wall, on the wall in your house, but not in the worship space. Um, and um, the I, and so many Puritans were actually very wealthy, and they dressed very differently than what you see in um, elementary school, um, you know, images, right, of a dour gray, black, you know. Um, we're talking very expensive clothing, gold and silver silk threads and women's corsets, some mm. of them. After all, wealth was a sign that you were one of the elect. Right. So you're so, being favored if you're able to afford these things. It's because you're doing what God wants you to do. That's right. That's it's, right. It, it reminds me of a statistic I recently heard that um, second only to Riyadh, where they have multifamily complexes, uh -huh. um, Utah County has the most square footage per person of anywhere in the world in homes. And in a way, you know, that's there's there's this idea that if you have a home, if you've got these these these, these things, then uh, God's favoring you with prosperity. He's prospering you in the land. Right? Yeah, and, and, that's, and a that's a very that's also. a very that's a very uh, Protestant American Protestant idea. And it's a Book of Mormon idea. Yes. And it's and it was taught, you know, very strongly in the 19th century. Um, I just am getting an article published where in which uh, some general authorities are teaching this. You know, if you're obedient, if you're righteous, all these things, then we will have enough money so we can build enough houses to earn the respect of East Coast people. <laughs> but if we come back to this, you know, it's, this uh, isn't as much about refinement and gentility as about the Protestant, what I call the Protestant and Catholic or ancient Hebrew divide in the church that shapes it. So one of these buildings is the Protestant. Right. And, the other and that's is the, the tabernacle. And so even the word tabernacle has a sacerdotal um, implications because it's drawn from the Old Testament. Tabernacle in the wilderness. Correct. Um, th that's not the way it was thought of. Um, this tabernacle is informed by um, the evangelical Christian tabernacle of Charles Grandison Finney that was constructed in Broadway on, on Broadway Street in New York. It was called the Broadway Tabernacle in 1836, the same year that Curtin Still there? No. Okay. Um, known, well known enough that when they yeah. when they built this, there was a direct reference yeah. in well, their minds. Well, because other people also called their meeting houses tabernacles after that. Uh, okay. It was larger than a small meeting house. Okay. And, um, and today, you'll find that language in some... Um, non-denominational um, evangelical churches, but most particularly in African-American churches that they use that phrase, uh, tabernacle, growing out of this evangelical culture. So meant to mean a place that was more impressive for larger use than just a regular chapel or church. So okay. there were these large preaching churches, and by this time they did allow organs, and so you would have this um, huge organ that acted as a backdrop to the speaker. So it still focuses um, on the preaching of the word, right. right? You still have a elevated pulpit, but the organ is not hidden in a loft. Like it, it, no Catholic or Anglican church has an organ right behind the speaker. No. Um, but here it's acting as a piece of furniture, like a picture frame that still frames that this is the central message. And that's what happens here. It's just the organs based on one from Boston Music Hall. And so, but you have there, it's, un, it's, it's undecorated. There's no, you know, statuary. Um, there's, there, you know, symbolism. There's an enormous amount of work that goes into the decorative elements of faux-graining, faux uh -huh. faux-marbling sure. elements. But uh -huh. those things are not meant to draw attention to themselves in the sense that Right, they're, away they're, from the word. That they're a philosophical work of art. That, that it's, right. it's, it's, they're there to make the building right. seem of a certain quality. Right. And so across the street, you have a, um, a neo-Gothic, you know, which is drawing from the 
vocabularies of um, medieval Christianity. Um, the windows were originally going to be a carpenter Gothic type here, but later they were rounded. And um, but it, you mean they were supposed to be like a like an OG arch? They like would, some of them look like they they, they are. would be rounded uh-huh. like like the ones in Saint George. Okay, but they would have the Gothic um, tracery. The okay, they're not f- full um, muntins or uh, so it doesn't have as much of it. Is all I'm saying. Okay. But the point is, you know, these exalted spires that, like a Gothic church, are pointing heavenward. Um, Protestant meeting houses did not have spires, right? And that's a Christopher Wren thing. Right. That then comes over, and later versions in the 18th century get a spire, right? Anglican, Anglican rebuilding of London, all of the churches being remade. So you have here, and then... um, so the building itself is highly aestheticized and the interior uh, is where one, well, uh, sorry. And the exterior has symbolism, right? All sorts of symbols carved in it. The idea of the angel Moroni, which was, you know, it, it was the angel Gabriel really. And um, which was a prop popular Protestant uh, trope is usually just a horizontal flying angel, like the one on the Nauvoo temple. And we have, you know, uh, invitations to the dedication of this temple where it's talking about the angel Gabriel. Oh, really? That's so a, when, so when they originally commissioned Cyrus Dallin to do it, uh-huh. were he, they using terms he, like, he just talks about the angel. So he doesn't, he doesn't even specify it at the time, but the invitations talk about Gabriel. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, and wait, that's a whole other discussion. Yeah, it isn't is. It? Yeah. Yeah. I need to, um, do a paper on that, but that image of that sort of um, classical contrapposto stance with a robe and a trumpet, that was a very popular. It was used by labor unions. Um, it was, you know, on parade posters, um, arts and crafts designers, C.A. Voise does a textile with it on it. Um, and so it, it was a very well-known image. Uh, I've seen a not- lot of the 19th century of artists who have studied in Rome uh-huh. who bring it back. And they, they yeah. put it in all kinds of mm-hmm. of, of situations. Yes, yeah. men and, and women. When, when it became Gabriel is is a little murky, but it's 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 around the time of the dedication, and maybe even before the dedication, um, by a member of the twelve. We think may have coined it there. And um, but anyway, it's a multivalent symbol, uh, probably at the time. But today, it's you know now coded Moroni only, right? Yes. The point is, um, it's a statue. It's a gilded statue, yes. Right. It, it's not so different from Augustus Saint Gaudens Diana, right? Um, on Madison Square, you know, a garden, the original one, and the the statues on Capitol buildings and things like that, right? Um, but on, but the interior, it's not plain. It's highly ornamented with murals that were in the which is in the first use of murals. They were in the endowment house. That's right. In the basement of the St. George Temple where they did the endowment around the fawn. Um, and so there's murals. There's um, elaborate... By missionaries that are sent to Europe. Uh-huh. So they're sent, like you're talking about yeah. in this tradition, they are sent to go, to, to go study and bring back... Right. And decorate the interior. That's right. And they, um, they have, you know, Carpeting, cherry wood, grain cherry that's all been painted white today, but it was it was a very sumptuous things interior. that would have been totally mortified within a Protestant tradition. That's right, and and, and the um, important piece, maybe the most important, is the Tiffany stained glass windows that several wealthy leaders of the church, including John R. Winder, who was the bishop, uh, Heber J. Grant, and the, um, and others, they uh, purchased a suite of stained glass windows from Tiffany Studios, which was. Without question, the most prestigious and most expensive uh, stained glass window uh, maker in the nation, and arguably even by European from Europeans considered the greatest production of stained glass windows that had ever been done in what was a very long tradition of well, making right. stained glass windows. You're right, and Louis Tiffany is really the first person from the United States to turn the heads of the French. There were Americans... And this is this goes directly into your PhD mm-hmm. um, d- dissertation, right? Yeah, because it's, Americans, um, you know, in, in, in 
whether it's furniture making, whether it's architecture, um, I mean, people in France, as particularly, to say nothing of Antwerp, um, you know, lace making in Bruges and Brussels, or um, you know, academy work in the London Academy. They looked upon Americans as like, oh, that's so adorable. Right. Like they want to be a painter. Right. Um, you know, I was in a class once at Winotor where uh, somebody was talking about this really valuable object in the collection, you know, the Van Pelt high chest. And it was, it's a beautiful carved high boy that um, came from Philadelphia. And, so, and somebody was sort of, you know, singing these pions to it. And my professor said, well, no, it's nice. There's no doubt. But let's not get carried away. I mean, it's it's nothing compared to what was being made at the French court. It's not an Oban or a Reasoner or a Boule or anything yeah, like that. It's exactly. not. It's not anything of that of that level. Exactly. But th- these were and the so, kinds of. The, but and these so, stories are told for a very long time, and I think that the temple is part of this too, is that it's part of this generation of artists, and this isn't just true of Americans. I, I did my master's and part of my doctoral thesis dealt with um, doctoral dissertation, I should yeah. say, in the UK say thesis, was part uh, was was of artists going to France, getting esteem, and then coming back, and they were esteemed locally if, in their nation, if the French had esteemed them. And so you have Rodin who says about uh, um, uh, St. Gaudens, the Americans have finally surpassed us. Mm-hmm. And that's quoted more in America than it is in France. Mm-hmm. You have of Soroya, Monet saying, Soroya is our greatest painter of light. And they, that's quoted in Spain, everywhere. Yeah. The French don't remember him saying that. Tiffany's different, though. Tiffany is winning the Universal Exhibition. That's right. He is getting, uh, he's getting, and they are, they are he is, he's the one who isn't just somebody who won the, the, the prize once, yeah. he is k- dominating the production yeah. of the highest quality that's being made. And then we are importing that into Utah. Utah that's right. Which is, that's right. You know, we're not trying to compete with them. We're actually taking from the best. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, uh, and, and here you have depictions of deity in stained glass. Um, the most know, sumptuous material yeah. that you could get, the most expensive at the time, right, right, and God being depicted yeah, so in it, it. It's the exact opposite of what's across the street, that Protestant heritage, hmm. and so, so here these two poles now shape Mormon culture, at least in terms of um, meeting houses, tabernacles, temples, and and what people you know consider, and and, and they. Um, um, they help frame a dynamic that a historian, um, Raymond Williams, would call a structure of feeling. That is a, a shared mental structure. Um, and so it's a, it's a metaphor to think about the way that we inhabit an architecture of mental consciousness yeah. in which we define what is normative and power negotiations happen within that structure to define what is correct, right? This is something... And, that, and, and because, but because here it's framed by seemingly irreconcilable um, foundations... Do you think it's reconcilable? It's, no. Because this is... this Not is, historically. I'll, I'll, I no, had you, a, you cannot say, ever make John Calvin... Right, a Counter Reformation Baroque guy. It's no, some... that's a historic. If it's reconcilable, sure. It, it's in a, but it would be in a way that really abandoned one or the other. Look, have you? If that makes sense, but... or or it's they're always in a, or yes, they're reconcilable in that they're always in a perpetual tension. So have you? Recon... And sure, and that's how most cultures are. Have you reconciled it within yourself? And before you answer that, let me. Let me ask a um, let, let me let me state a conversation that I had with my wife recently. Okay. So my wife um, was was joking and she said, "Doctrinally, I'm Mormon. Uh-huh. Aesthetically, I'm Catholic." Uh huh. And and um, this is a phrase that I've kind of toyed around with for myself. 
And we were talking about it in terms of chapels. Okay. You go to almost any LDS chapel and you have the pulpit dead center. You have the altar to the side of it. You would never consider putting a work of art, but you do have like the tabernacle often within LDS chapels uh-huh. framed by the organ, which then focuses you on the speaker themselves. Right. Um, and then you hear people say, you know, I just feel like after that, that our, that our chapels are so bare. They are, they, and, and Rita Wright, Dr. Rita Wright yeah. often talks about this idea of, God, you know, we're just not, we're, we need to pull in more of this. And she will talk about the Anglican tradition mm-hmm. of turning these into sacred spaces that pull yeah. us upward. I feel like a lot of people struggle with reconciling them. Mm-hmm. The, the sensory aesthetic yeah. of the Catholic yeah. versus the austere focus on the word. Mm-hmm. Have you settled it within yourself? Um, is it settleable? Um, it it is. I, I think it is settleable. Um, in it, that's a great you know new word settleable. Um, <laughs> insofar as one is able to hold in tension the paradox, because Mormon thought or Mormon doctrine. It parallels these two buildings. And yes. so let's talk about that. Joseph Smith's project, um, when he, uh, it was, at the, at the first, it was a Protestant experience, right? He goes to meetings, he goes to camp meetings, and he is told that he is depraved, that he needs to seek salvation, and that he can do this by how? By um, an ecstatic experience, right? So there, there is a corporeal, embodied experience when, when an evangelical says, I am born again. Right. Catholic theology or Anglican would say that's not at all necessary. You only have to be baptized by priesthood authority. Right. And even though there were times in Catholic Church, Teresa de Avila and others that of course, were, but they were clearly breaking with the mold and trying to change the paradigm from the other. So, so it, it is it is in there, but it's not the dominant strain. You're of course, yeah, right. yeah. We have Two thousand years of Christian history that you know, right, Christian right. history to boil down here, but nevertheless, for his time, right? right. If you would have gone to, you know, the Catholic Church in Baltimore, Maryland, the Basilica there, you know, it, they wouldn't have. Press that experience, right? That grows out of the 18th century with people like George Whitfield in the United States, right? So he does it. You know, that's his to come back to that the idea of structures of feeling that that those mental that mental architecture that says you are a sinner, you do need to, and this is how you do it. So he runs the program, and he's visited um, by God, the Father, and Jesus, and he's told, you know, according to the earliest account of the first vision, his question is, you know, how do I receive absolution? How am I forgiven of my sins? And he's told, you're forgiven, right? And he's great, good to go. So he has this experience. It's highly individualistic. This is Martin Luther and Calvin years later, that Luther says the church, we don't need you. We don't need the sacraments. We don't need all these things, right? Right. I can go directly to God. Who are you to tell me that you are my mediator? Right. And so they introduced this idea that, you know, the priesthood of of the believers. Right. So then uh, the Book of Mormon uh, is a very is very similar in that type of theology. And then, um, you know, when the church is organized and they organize according to elders and all this stuff that's very similar to Methodist, you know, congregations with their annual conferences and meetings and all that, right? But very soon he starts to complicate that strain. When you say he, you're talking about Joseph, Joseph Smith. Smith. Yeah. And it's a, it's a very individualistic strain that is a time of American individualism, right? This is Jacksonian America and, um, and, and the whole enlightenment tradition that has informed the constitution and the framing of the Republic has to do with individual liberties. So now he, um, he, he starts talking about a, a corporate responsibility to gather. That you don't just join the church and stay where you are, right? You gather, you come to Missouri to prepare for the second coming. You gather to build Zion, to build the temple, right? Yeah. And, um, and he uses um, uh, the, the, um, the later the uh, 
text of Enoch about this being of one mind and one heart, right? Right, which is very but, much against rugged individualism. Which is not a John Hancock speech. No. Which is not a Thomas Jefferson speech. No. Um, it, it's, it's about this, you know, it's, and then he introduces ideas of communal economic living, that you're supposed to donate your money uh, to the church or contribute it. They would have called it your inheritance. Right. Um, and then you'll be, you know, meted out what you needed, et cetera, right? And so these are, okay, well, this is sort of a way of living maybe. Shakers might have done something similar. There were other utopian communities. Yeah. But then he says um, later that we have to do baptisms for the dead, similar to the way ancient Christians did, as evidenced by 1 Corinthians. Um, and that the reason is not just their salvation. It's the Latter-day Saint salvation. He says, neither can they be saved without us or us without them. Well, what does that mean? Definitely not sudden, individualism no, anymore. And all of a sudden, so, yeah, so my, my salvation is now tied up in this. And then um, when he's asked, you know, about um, at this meeting in Ramus, Illinois, about uh, celestial marriage and um, the idea of, you know, uh, what they would call the new and everlasting covenant of marriage, right? He says that there are three degrees in the celestial kingdom. And a man can only attain to the highest if he has entered into this order of the priesthood. So that means... You're reintroducing... Your exaltation is contingent upon a covenant with somebody else. Right. And and not only your fealty to it, but theirs. Um, and then the idea of, you know, uh, of him having... creating family kingdoms... That the way that sealings worked, it wasn't about the nuclear family. It was about creating family kingdoms. And so people, you know, like uh, would be sealed to Joseph Smith or Heber Kimball or whatever, and then people were adopted into their families, right? And so you'd be adopted, say, if you're John D. Lee, and you're sealed to Brigham Young. And then um, that means you're a part of that, uh, should we call it a dynasty? Um, you know, whatever you want to call it. And, um, and Joseph Smith closed all this in, you know, in this language of welding links, right? To go back to the baptism metaphor. that He says, you know, they're, they're, he has an anxiety about society atomizing, A-T-O-M, atomizing. Right. And, and, he, and, and, and the theology solves that problem of bringing everybody back together, but it complicates any sort of um, soteriology of indi individualism because it says, yeah, in 1830, it was just about you getting baptized. But now my salvation is contingent upon a network of relationships that expands into the future and in the past, and, 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 and it's all tied up, right? And so that idea of the communion of the saints and um, communal salvation, right, um, is Augustine's city of God. This is a very Catholic idea. Right, which it's, it's something that, that I feel like— So that's why I come back to your wife. I'd be like, well, actually, maybe you do well, have some Catholic theology or, or at least non-Protestant. Right, you and know, it's, it's something maybe more that, I, that I feel like we are tr we're, we're, we're trying to approach Zion. I mean, this is a, approaching Zion yeah. as a community, but it's it's something that I think I'm I'm sure I'm not the only one who feels it. I'm sure a lot of people have that there is an inherent contradiction within the idea of um, being in Zion and um, being um, be having and, and being an individual. And and um, and mm -hmm. it's something that I think we reconcile. It's something that uh, I was talking with a friend about the other day. I'm I'm a massive fan of Walt Whitman, mm -hmm. and Walt Whitman in Leaves of Grass famously says, "The day for priests is over." I, I'll tell you that there will be a day when every man will be his own priest and every woman his own priestess. And without going into any details, it's the idea that I think in Zion that um, part of the idea of Zion is there is such trust. There's such a relationship that those who are in Zion are their own arbiters on many levels of their own righteousness 
and there's a level of trust. But friend said to me, so what's the bishop's job in Zion? Are there bishops in Zion? And his answer was, well, I think it's there if somebody's basement gets flooded. Then he calls them in <laughs> to help to help if their basement gets flooded. And I thought, you know, this is this is a this is ultimately one of the questions that if we are going to reach Zion, right? These are practical problems that have to be solved. In Zion, is there a Protestant tabernacle mm-hmm. with with no art in it whatsoever and a separate experience yeah. of going into a temple? Right. And and are those things bouncing off of one another like they are in this image? And it's a very I mean, this is not a cohesive, this image of the temple and the tabernacle, yeah. this is not a cohesive aesthetic plan. There are three buildings in this. Mm-hmm two of which are completely different than one another. And because we're used to it, maybe we don't realize how radically different they are. I, I, and, and I don't know if until we have these conversations, we realize how radically opposed many of our own beliefs are. It was at this point in our conversation that it was clear that Dr. Probert had more to talk about and ideas that would go well beyond the normal amount of time that we take in these podcast interviews. So we've decided to break this into two parts. Here we'll end with what we just began with as a discussion about tabernacles, and we'll pick up in our next episode of Mormon Visual Culture with a discussion about the Bountiful Tabernacle, leading on to the larger tabernacle movement, and then the role of artists within the larger creation of buildings in the church. With that, I'd like to thank Dr. Josh Probert for joining us for this, the first of two interviews we do with him for Mormon Visual Culture, presented by the Zion Art Society. You can see the works we discussed on our website, zionartsociety.org, under the podcast tab. For more interviews with artists, collectors, and scholars, subscribe to Mormon Visual Culture on iTunes. I'm Micah Christensen. Thank you for listening.